6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Well, we're in the final stretch going through the book of Proverbs. And tonight we're going to focus on just one chapter, chapter 30, because it contains some things that I think you're going to be uh, surprised by, and it takes a little explanation. And we're going to gain some insights here, not just about the book of Proverbs, but it may open a whole gate to another adventure. There are things in the biblical text that are... uh, just fascinating. It's, it, it's amazing to me to realize that people are discovering things that have been there all along, but not, has not surfaced in centuries. And uh, one of these I think we'll encounter tonight. Book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Now, you may recall, of course, the first nine chapters was wisdom and folly contrasted. Then we went through a number of Proverbs from chapters 10 through 24 that were written and set in order by Solomon himself. And then we got a group of them that were set and ordered in the days of Hezekiah, chapters 25 through 29. But the book implies, by its opening paragraphs and so forth, that it was entirely written by Solomon. Now we're in chapter 30, which appears to be words from the king of Agur, whoever he was. And we'll have a final chapter from Lemuel's mother in the next session and when we wrap up the whole book. The Oracle of Agur, you could call this chapter. Now let's back up a little bit and remind ourselves of some of the things that we explored when we first undertook the study of the book of Proverbs. And first of all, who authored the book? It claims to be authored by Solomon. There's no reason to doubt that. And uh, he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. They're not all here. And this is, just, this is alluded to in 1 Kings 4. He is widely considered as the wisest person in his day. In fact, he's so designated in the book of Kings. And uh, he reigned from about 971 to 931 B.C. Now, that's why they, it gets later as the numbers get smaller, obviously. And uh, so the Proverbs he wrote date essentially from the 10th century. Now, the chapters that we saw uh, last time, Proverbs 25 through 29, were written by Solomon, but were compiled in the days of Hezekiah, as it is so designated. And he reigned from about 729 to 686. So you got, you know, 7th century stuff there. But the real point, before we get hung up on all of that, let's realize that even though Sol- Solomon was the penman, he's the one that put these down, uh, the author is God himself. And that's a bridge that I hope you've already crossed with us in our studies. Paul designates this in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's easy to remember. 2 Timothy is the last letter to his protege. 
And 3.16, we all remember, so it's an easy one to remember, in which Paul says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture. Now that includes, among other things, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, which was translated into Greek three centuries before Christ's ministry, and in fact was adopted as the Christian's Bible. When you read quotes in the New Testament, quotes from the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that package was authenticated by the Lord and by the early church in many ways. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now that's a glib phrase. What do we really mean by that? It turns out the Greek word itself that's used there means God-breathed. That means exactly what it sounds like. That this is an expression by God himself. Indeed, many of these expressions will reflect the culture and style of the penman, but it is still God-breathed. And that has uh, all kinds of uh, implications. We're now discovering that there are passages in the Bible that have certain mathematical relationships that are virtually impossible to simulate, and yet one letter difference and it all falls apart. So uh, those experiences that we get uh, gives us an increasingly higher confidence and respect for the word itself. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction. What do we mean by doctrine? It's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine simply designate that which is right. Right from wrong, so to speak. For reproof, that tells you what's not right. For correction is how to get it right. And instruction, how to stay right. That makes sense? Those are fancy words, but that's all they mean. It's pretty straightforward. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Okay. Now, in the... In the Hebrew mind, they have a style of interpretation that we can learn some lessons from. They have four levels of meaning that they look for in the text. The first is the Peshat, and that's the literal or direct meaning. It's very straightforward. What it says, it means what it says. But then there's a next level that they call the Remez, and that's the allegorical significance. It's a, sometimes called a hint of something deeper. Many of the stories, the narratives, are very literal and have their practical lessons on the one hand, but they also have often an allegorical significance. How the wanderings of Israel in the 38 years in the wilderness are a profile of their future history, their ups and downs, and so forth. It's, it, these are things that are, deserve a lot of study. A hint of something deeper. Those are the first two levels. There's a third level that they call the Darash. And that's the practical or personal application of the passage. Now, in the Christian world, we have the same equivalent, the direct, literal uh, rendering. We generally consider the second level the, what they call the Darash, the homiletical or practical implication of the text. Below that, then, having established that, then there's the allegorical significance and there's lots of examples of that. One, one that pops in my mind is the famous uh, time when Jesus um, was in the crowd and there's a woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years and uh, she pressed through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment and was healed. You know the story. Where is he going? He's on his way to see the daughter, Jairus and his daughter. His daughter's died. 
It's on his way to Jairus that this incident occurs with this woman with the issue of blood. And uh, when he gets to, uh, and he deals with that, then when he gets to Jairus, he raises the daughter from the dead. You all know the story. Except Mark throws a little curve in his rendering. He points out how old was Jairus when she was raised. She was 12 years old. And that's it. That's all there is. There's no comment by Paul in the epistles or anything. But you stand back from this and you say, wait a minute. Here's this woman with an issue of blood that had for 12 years. That must have started when the daughter died. If nothing else, it seems the Holy Spirit's linking those two incidents that presumably have nothing in common. But then as you study your Bible a little more, you realize if this woman had an issue of blood and was in the crowd, she was a Gentile. Because a Jew would not be allowed there that had an issue of blood. She'd be considered unclean. So then you stand back from all this and you realize that Jesus, on his way to raise Jairus, heals a Gentile by faith. And you stand back. Is that Jesus came to call Israel together and incident to that whole thing, of course, the door gets open to the Gentile world, which we call the church. So there's an allegorical possibility here. I'm just, uh, I don't want to develop it in depth. I'm just giving you an example how there are often implications of these passages that go far beyond the actual immediate historical thing. That's what uh, in the Hebrew they might call a remez. But in any case, the Hebrew also has a fourth level of meaning, which they call the sod. And that's the mystical or hidden meaning. And uh, uh, so those are the four classical ways of looking at uh, the text from a Hebrew perspective. When you talk about prophecy, there's also a difference of perspective. You and I, when we think of prophecy, we think of it as a prediction and then a fulfillment. A prediction and a fulfillment. And indeed it is, but that's actually the Greek mind at work. The Hebrew mind looks at it more broadly. They see prophecy as pattern. And that's one thing what we call types and those kinds of things. They come out of the, the res and so forth. Well, let's, and the way the rabbis remember this four level of meaning is by the word pardes for the peshat, the remez, the dirash, and the sod, which happens to be the word for garden or for paradise. It's just a, a mnemonic way of remembering the four and the order that they, they generally regard them. Well, having said all of that, let's you and I take a look at the first few verses of Proverbs chapter 30. We'll first just read it together. The words of Agur, the son of Yake, even the prophecy, the man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Ukal. Have you gotten anything out of that so far? Okay. It gets worse. Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. Really? Why are we listening? I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. Now I challenge you to look at any of a hundred commentaries and they'll all say pretty much similar things. They have no idea who Agur is. They don't even have good speculations. There's no record of any king named Agur, let alone Yake. And Ethiel and Ukel, I think, has some, suffer the same fate at the hands of the commentators. And trying to unravel the next two sentences, it's, it's actually humorous to watch the commentators 
try to make this some kind of positive statement. I mean, try that, you know. Surely I'm more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. Then why are you in this platform, Chuck? Yeah. I neither learned wisdom. Wait a minute. I thought that's what the whole book of Proverbs was all about, right? Nor have knowledge of all. That's the way it is in the King James, and it's no better in the more modern translations. So let's take another look at this. And what I'm going to share with you, I don't think, I'll be, I'd love it if you find this uh, written somewhere. I'd love to know because I have literally dozens of commentaries and have exhausted them. And if it wasn't for the glimmer of insight of a, a, a rabbinical friend of mine that we spend Shabbats with who showed me what I'm about to show you, and I doubled back on this and checked it out, and it just, frankly, blew me away to discover what's really sitting here as a gem. And one of the... Well, let's go take a look at it first. First of all, Agor. What on earth is Agor all about? And what is Yake all about? And Ethiel and Yukel. These are... Let's just start with those Hebrew words and find out what they really say. The word Agor in the Hebrew means to collect. King Agor is simply a label called the collector. The collector. That's what it means. He's the collector. Now, it's probably a symbolical name. The, the, if we were studying the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that it's called in the Hebrew, it's written by the Koheleth. But everybody knows who the Koheleth was, the preacher. It was Solomon. It was one of the titles of Solomon. He adopted that title when he wrote Ecclesiastes, okay? No comment, no, no controversy there. You can check that out anywhere. Here we have some writings by, under the pen name, the Collector. What was Solomon a collector of, beside wives? Dark sayings. We'll come to that in a minute. I'm going to suggest to you and this is not unique to me. It turns out that both Rashi, one of the most venerated of the rabbinical writers, and also Jerome, both suggested this, might, this label might symbolize Solomon. So, so far, so good. We've got some, at least some confirmation of some experts so far. Solomon, it, you may be surprised to discover, wasn't his name originally. That was David's royal name that he assigned him. What was he named when he was born? Nathan named him Jedediah. That was his real name, Jedediah, which means beloved of Jehovah or yad heh And uh, this is the, by, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 25, you'll discover that's, that was his name at birth. David named him Solomon. Those are just two. I'm going to suggest before we're through, we're going to have four. Lemuel, we'll talk about in our next session, I believe it's Solomon, I'm going to suggest to you that it was a pet name of Solomon by his mother, Bathsheba. We'll sort that out when we get to the next session. Well, this King Agur is in the text says is the son of Yake, and he's apparently a mysterious collector of wise sayings and ostensibly inspired counsels to these other two characters, Ethiel and Ukel. We haven't unraveled them yet, but that's our going in position. You with me so far? 
So far, we're not, we're, we haven't crawled out too far on a limb here. Now, if you go back to Proverbs chapter 1, it opens up, his first sentence is, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And goes on to give you the reasons, to know wisdom and to receive instruction and so forth. The opening sentence of the book tells you who wrote the book. So all these names are, I believe, alternative names for Solomon himself. If it said the Koaleth, we jump right on that. Well, sure, that's what he called himself in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here, apparently, for whatever reasons, he decided to call himself something a little more mysterious, the collector. He apparently had like a hobby of collecting what they, the scripture calls dark sayings. And uh, so in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, a wise man will hear when, and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsels to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and what? They're dark sayings. You find that phrase throughout the scripture, here and there. Dark sayings. What does it mean by it? It doesn't necessarily mean sinister, like the dark side of the force or something. But they're dark in the sense that they're enigmatic. They're riddles. Okay? The word escheda, which is a riddle or a parable or an enigma, something to be guessed at, a perplexing saying of a question or a dark, obscure utterance. Solomon loved these things. Several places in Scripture, he is a collector of those things. And King Agor is simply his title as the collector of these dark sayings. Let's find out what else he says. In, in Psalm 78, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us and so forth. This is a very Jewish thing. It's a Jewish my uh, mystery, if you will. Dark sayings. Okay. Now, this king we're talking about is the son of somebody called Yake. Well, what on earth is Yake? You check your genealogies. I don't think you'll find one. Yake comes from Yake, which means carefully religious, obedient. Pious is a good uh, synonym, if you will. So King Agor is the son of the pious one. Okay, and if, if, if Agor is Solomon, then who is Yake? Anyone? David, exactly. So Agor is the son of Yake, a mysterious collector of wise sayings, and ostensibly now, he inspired counsels to Ethiel and Ukel. You start hunting for those guys, you got a problem. Let's find out what those words mean. Of course, the father of Agor would thus be David. Okay, then there's a sentence in the Hebrew that reads as follows, even the prophecy the man spake is the way you have it in your King James. That first word, realize it's on the right end there, the first word is hamasa. That's a word you're probably, you might be familiar with as the burden or prophecy. It's all through the prophets, the burden of Ezekiel, so uh, the burden or the, the, the prophecy. Ha is the, the masa, the prophecy. Neum is the oracle, and hageber is the mighty. So these three words are a strange collection of words, but the, the best you can probably do is the mighty oracle prophesied. Okay, no problem so far. That sort of sorts itself out, at least tentatively. Now we get to this word Ethiel. The word means God comes or arrives, is with me. It's virtually a synonym for Emmanuel. 
The word Emmanuel means God with us. But it's a, it's a label of whom? Jesus Christ, indeed. And I'm going to suggest Ethiel is equivalent to uh, God arrives, God's with us, uh, pretty much the same thing. And, and of course, uh, Emmanuel is used in Isaiah 7.14 and also in Isaiah 8.8. 8. Well, let's take a look at this guy, Ukal. Ukal is a verb in the Hebrew meaning to be consumed. Really? What is, you know, what's going on here? God arrives... To be consumed? Is that what it's saying? How, how could that be interpreted? When did God get incarnated to be consumed? Well, you could say one way to look at it is the cross. But there's another way to look at it also. But anyway, we put this all together. Let's just tie it all together before we go on. The words gathered of the wise son of the pious father, the prophecy of the mighty oracle that El, God, arrives to be consumed. The more you think about it, that's pretty strange stuff until you get to John chapter 6, where Jesus himself makes a strange pronouncement. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread... He shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're applying it literally, of course, and he's making, he's making a different kind of a point here. Going on. Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now when Jesus says, I say unto you, that's an emphasis. When he says, Verily, I say unto you, that's a double underline. When he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, check it out. He is putting three underlines under it, okay? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ooh, ye have no life in you. By the way, that's unlawful to a rabbi. The whole Torah thing is you never drink blood. That's what the whole issue of kosher meat and all that's all, that's all about. So this is not, obviously not just an idiom, obviously, but it's an offensive idiom. First point, I want to just subtle, make a subtle point here. Jesus isn't packaging himself in terms of their expectation. Just the opposite. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. And on it goes. John 6, check it out. But here in the book of Proverbs, apparently... It's a suggestion. We have a prophecy by Solomon that the king Agur, the son of Yaakov, the pious one, that God arrives to be consumed. Whew. Well, Chuck, that's pretty far-fetched. If it's true, let's check it out. Let's go on and see what else he says. Proverbs, we're down to verse 2. 
says, surely I'm more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. That's, of course, the King James. I neither learn wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. The word brutish is actually a Hebrew word that means carnal or natural. Naturally, in the, we think of the word carnal adversely, as Paul uses it. But it means in the flesh. I am as much in the flesh as any man. He's incarnate. This isn't God just as a spirit. This is God in the flesh, okay? I am uh, as carnal as any man. The word man here is ish, which means mankind. In contrast to what he's about to say, I have not the understanding of Adam. It takes a little different connotation when you realize who's speaking and what he's really saying. I'm not trying to disparage the King James translators. It's clear they didn't understand what they're translating. Surely I am more natural or, or incarnate than any mankind, of mankind and, have, but, and have not the understanding of Adam, not limited to the understanding of Adam, what he's saying. And he goes on then to explain that line. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. If you examine a Hebrew interlinear Bible, you'll notice there is no negative nor. The nor was added by the translators because the only way they could make sense of this thing. He doesn't say, I neither learned wisdom. I was not taught wisdom. That's what it says. All the difference in the world. doesn't mean he lacks wisdom. It means he didn't need to be taught wisdom. And if you've been to Proverbs chapter 8, you know what I'm talking about from the wisdom chapter. Remember? I neither, I, I, I was not taught wisdom, but I have knowledge of the holy. It's positive, not negative in the Hebrew. The nor was added by the translators. There's no negative there in the Hebrew. I was not taught wisdom, and I have knowledge of the holy. So he's going to prove it to you in the next sentences. You ready? Here's what goes on in verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? It's asking in the sense, answer if you can. Who, it's, it, this will echo Job 38, when God gives Job his science quiz. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Proverbs. Download the K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the iTunes or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.